wonderful as always, sir. A lot of thanks has been expressed for all the many people who served to make this weekend possible. I won't uh, go on as I have been known to do in the past, but there, there is two people I very much would like to uh, point out uh, to you this morning. Uh, the stage looks wonderful. Uh, I wish if you could, you could see it at night, you should go onto our Facebook page or Instagram and see some of the pictures from it lit up at night. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, that requires, obviously, a lot of hard work. Uh, Robert Maxwell, Jessica Maxwell, they have been up here uh, as much and more than I have all during this week, putting this together and doing so much more to make sure that this weekend went off without a hitch. They were here before I would get here in the mornings. They were here with me late into the nights, serving and working diligently to make sure that our students had a wonderful weekend. And it's not just this weekend. I've been on staff here now for uh, a little over five years, and they have been serving with Lacey and I in the student ministry every step of the way. They mean a great deal to my family. Uh, they are a great encouragement to us because of how well they love this church and they love the students. So before you say thanks to me, I would encourage you, seek them out and tell them thank you for loving this church so, so very well. One of the things that we have done throughout uh, this weekend is we've wanted to focus on the persecuted church. As we've talked about uh, a relentless pursuit of Christ, pursuing Christ no matter the cost, we've wanted to challenge students by causing them to see and hear stories from believers from all over the world who, despite uh, far greater levels of persecution uh, than we could ever know in the United States continue to faithfully pursue the Lord Jesus and how the gospel continues to grow in these countries in spite of and even through persecution. And so as we kind of go through this morning, I'll be uh, bringing out different things that we've talked about this, this weekend, including that. And today we're going to take some time to focus on Saudi Arabia and pray for the persecuted church in Saudi Arabia. That will come here in a little bit. Uh, a lot of great material on Open Doors USA if you want to look it up and read about the persecuted church in and around the world. And so the story that I'd love to share with you this morning comes from them. You might know this, but in Saudi Arabia, it is illegal for a Muslim to convert to Christianity. Anyone who does can be charged with apostasy, which carries with it the death penalty. Christianity, along with all other religions outside of Islam, uh, is not recognized and are not recognized as uh, religions. And so that being so, being that Islam is the only recognized religion in Saudi Arabia, no one is allowed to meet for worship unless they are uh, practicing Islam. No symbols of your faith, no crosses, those are illegal. You may not have the image of the cross or any other Christian symbol um, on your person, in your home, anywhere. And so as a result, Christians in Saudi Arabia are constantly risking imprisonment, physical abuse, and severe threats, including death, for their faith. 
But despite these things, a young Muslim woman by the name of Fatima came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And having come to know the Savior of the world and desperately desiring for her friends to know the Lord Jesus whom she had come to know, she began to write blogs for her friends to read because she wanted them desperately to know about the newfound faith that she had in the Lord Jesus. But because of the climate in Saudi Arabia, had to write under an alias for safety. And while that may have protected her from physical attack, it did not prevent people from spewing venom at her. In one particularly cruel response to her writing, someone said this to her, You worship a foolish, crucified, cursed Lord. If I had my hands on you, I would slaughter you twice. I don't know about you. I probably wouldn't respond to that because I don't know that I could respond to that well. Fatima, however, responded with this. May the Lord Jesus guide you and enlighten your hearts to those who become Christians. How you are so cruel. And the Messiah says, blessed are the persecuted. And by God, I am unto death a Christian. What would cause someone in a culture where the threat that has been leveled against you is consistent with laws on the books to stand with this sort of resolute defiance in the face of opposition? How do we get ourselves to a place where there is no price that is too high to pay for remaining obedient to the Lord Jesus? So over the next little while, I want to contend with you that this has to come from a place of such confidence in God because of the Christians standing with him that the idea of living a life of ease and comfort and safety is just silly. This is because that this has to come from a place of such confidence in God because of the great lengths to which he has gone to save my soul. And that because he is the one who has done it, there is nothing that can take me from him or him from me. And that it comes from a place where we gladly say with the Apostle Paul that to die is gain. And so our text this morning, my hope is that we will all see that this confidence that we can have in God is the end result for anyone who, for, who through faith in Christ has been declared by God to be right with him. If you will, let me pray, and then we're going to look at Romans chapter 3. Most glorious Lord, this time is yours, this space is yours. For you alone, O oh God, are the one who gives us life and breath and every good thing. You are the one who gathers us together and allows us to gather in worship of you. Lord God, this is your word, and it is your word alone that will save and transform lives this morning, not my own. So, Father God, blot out my words that yours may be spoken clearly. O oh God, by your Spirit, would you work in the hearts of us as a church body, 
as individuals and as a corporate gathering of believers, that you, O God, would be exalted through the preaching of your word this morning and through the living out of your word, O God, for which we are dependent only on your spirit to do. May you be pleased with our time this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Our text for this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26. I have to imagine that there is a verse in here that you are all quite familiar with. But let's take a look at, at it on the whole. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. It says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. So I think there's two things to draw out of the text this morning, and the first is this, and that is justification comes by God's grace through faith in His Son. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans, then you know that we've jumped in at, we'll say it's just a, kind, of a, kind of a big turning point in the letter. It's kind of an important part. So to this point in the letter, Paul has focused on the unrighteousness of man, that man by nature is inclined towards sin and the rejection of God. So Paul starts broadly with all of mankind in Romans 1, verse 18. In the verses that follow from there, Paul says that God's wrath is ready to be revealed because of the unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In our sin, Paul says that, that we do not give God the worship that He alone deserves, and if that's not bad enough, we actually worship other parts of creation instead of the Creator of all things. Because of the wickedness of man, there in Romans 1, Paul says three different times that God gives us up. He turns us over to the evil desires of our hearts so that we only increase in unrighteousness. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? But then get to Romans chapter 2. And lest we think, all right, yeah, we're moving on from Romans 1, Romans 2. That's going to be more cheerful and happy. It's not. In Romans 2, Paul turns his focus specifically to the Jews. I mean, keep in mind, these are the chosen people of God that we read about all through the Old Testament. Paul will say of the Jews in Romans 9 that they have from God the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He will also say that the patriarchs 
The fathers of the Jewish people belong to them. And then to cap it all off, he says, and that from them, by the flesh, the Christ has come into the world. They knew the holy and righteous God of the universe in a way that the rest of the world did not. And they were instructed, you are to make me known to the nations. But in Romans 2, 17-29, we read that though they were ethnically Jews who were boasting in God, they had the law, they had the circumcision, which was the mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham, their faithlessness showed that they were outside the true people of God. Paul points out that even though they knew and could teach the law, they didn't do what it said. They thought that they were wise and that they were able to teach the foolish, but they themselves were the fools. They would command others, obey the law, follow the law, but then they would fail to keep it themselves. They too were unrighteous, rightly condemned before God because of their unrighteousness. So Paul brings all of this together in Romans chapter 3, where quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, he writes in verses 10 through 12 of Romans 3, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. In our sin, we are utterly and completely opposed to God. We do not want Him. We do not want His ways. We want nothing to do with Him. Paul says in Colossians that we are hostile towards Him. And then in Ephesians, we are His enemies and children of wrath. This is who we are apart from the righteousness of God that is ours only by faith in the Lord Jesus. But of course, none of this would be a problem if God was not holy or just. But He is. Paul points us to this reality by mentioning the righteousness of God in the text we just read four different times in verses 21 and 22, and then again in 25 and 26. You see, the holiness of God is on display from the very first pages of the Bible. We read in Genesis 1 how He speaks everything into existence. With His Word, He creates. And looking on what He has made, He calls it good. Even very good. That's because it came forth from Him. He is good. He's perfect in every way. Therefore, whatever He makes and whatever He does is good. Because He is good and holy. His holiness is seen again in Genesis 3 when He punishes Adam and Eve for their sin against against Him. He cast them out of the garden, no longer to dwell in His presence, which tells us that He cannot be around the unholiness and unrighteousness of man because He is holy and righteous. His holiness... And his just wrath against sin shows up again in Genesis 6 and 7. Where in response to the increasing evil of man, the thoughts of their heart were always continually on evil, we read. God sends a great flood 
and wipes out every life on the face of the earth, except for those in the ark with Noah. His holiness is on display all throughout the book of Leviticus, where we see what would be required for a sinful people who God had chosen for himself to dwell in his presence and have his presence among them. The scope of the law tells us that a great deal is required for people to dwell with God and have God dwell among man. And there was so much to this law that there was no hope of keeping it perfectly. But perfection is what is required because God is perfect. From cover to cover, the Word of God makes it clear that God is perfect. He is holy. He is right. He is good. But not only is God holy, He holds absolute authority over everything that He has made. It is His. He is the Creator of all things. And made all things for His purpose, which is to bring Him glory. And that it will do. This world and all that is in it, including me and including you, belong to Him. This means any rebellion against Him, anything that denies His supreme authority, is worthy of only one punishment, death. I say that all things will bring Him glory, whether in worship or in judgment. I say, let's think of it like you would a criminal court. You and I, we are the defendants. We rebelled against the Lord of the universe, trying to overthrow His rule and His reign over us to claim authority for ourselves. Therefore, the charge that's leveled against us is treason, and rightfully so. And God is not seated in the plaintiff box. No, He is judge, He is jury, He is executioner. He has absolute and final say over what will happen to us. And all the evidence is abundantly clear. There's no defense to be made. We are guilty. We can't make an argument with Him. And our only hope, this being the case, is to make things right. To fix what we have done. And therefore make ourselves right with God. But there's nothing we can do. There is no hope. There's no way that we can correct the problem on our own. And so as to make ourselves right with the one true God. The verdict is read. Guilty on all charges. The sentence comes in. Death and eternal suffering. The gavel is raised. And it's ready to fall. Executing his just wrath and his perfect judgment upon us for our sin. Because of the absolute authority that he has and that he uses to judge sin, outside of him intervening on our behalf, there is not one ounce of hope for anyone in this world. There is only wrath to come against sin. But that brings us back to verse 21. Here we read that the righteousness of God has appeared apart from the law. 
God Himself has stepped into time and space in His incarnate Word. Christ Jesus our Lord, God the Son. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And it is in His person, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Paul tells us that the righteousness of God has come and is available to man. Hallelujah. Paul points us to this truth there beginning in verse 21 where he says that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Whereas we are unholy, Jesus, God in the flesh, was and is holy, perfect in his obedience to the Father. Through his obedience, even to the point of death on the cross for our sins, he has done what we simply cannot do. He met God's standard for perfection, for holiness, because He is the righteousness of God in the flesh. Through Him and His righteousness, sinful man now has access to the righteousness of God. This is the point that Paul is making in verse 21 and following. The thing that we could never attain on our own. The righteousness of God. He has now made available to us by His Son, through His Son, by faith, and only by faith. That's why Paul says that it has been manifested apart from the law. No man was going to be able to keep the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial components of the law perfectly and then be declared righteous that way. In fact, what Paul points us to here in the text is that through the law and also the prophets, God told his people this over and over again. It's not to say that the law was bad. Paul will tell us elsewhere that the law was good and that it revealed dependence upon God for righteousness. Because what the law revealed was the sinfulness of man through man's inclination to break the law over and over again. But in this, it pointed people to what has always been the requirement for salvation. Faith. We see this in this text. And we see uh, Paul dealing with this in greater detail in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. I would write those down, look them up, and fact check me. Fact check everything that comes from my mouth. It was faith in the promises of God that led to righteousness being credited to those before the advent of Christ. And this faith led them to do uh, what was right, uh, to, 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 to practice right and proper obedience to the law that he had given. It was never about mechanical obedience, but instead obedience that is rooted in faith and love for God. The law simply established a system for people to live out their faith, to live out their love for God. And the prophets constantly called God's people back to what God truly desired from them. Love for Him and faith in Him. But now, what the law and the prophets had foreshadowed has come in the person and the work Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus himself made this perfectly clear with the two disciples that he was walking with on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. It was all pointing to him. He is the fulfillment of it all. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. 
He is the offspring of Abraham who blesses the nations. He is the sacrificial lamb who is slain for the sins of his people. He is the Davidic king who sits on the throne and reigns forever. Through him, the righteousness of God has come into the world. And look what God does through this. I joked earlier, and I'll joke again. I like jokes. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Romans 23. You can probably quote it in your sleep, some of you. In it, Paul is calling us back to everything that he's laid out about the nature of man. We are unrighteous. We go after evil at every turn, all having rejected the authority of God. But he's chosen to justify us anyways. By grace, through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith, the righteousness of God is for all who believe. Through faith, we have been justified. What does that mean? What are we talking about? I say justification, doctrine of justification. What in the world does that mean? We mean that God has counted us as right before him through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. He takes his people, he takes the church, and he cleanses her of all her unrighteousness. Go back to the courtroom scene I mentioned earlier. Where did we leave off? Sinful man condemned to die. Sentence is in. The gavel is raised and ready to fall. God the judge is ready to execute judgment. Execute his sentence on us for our sin. But at the moment when our sentence is to be carried out, in steps his very son. He assumes all of our guilt. And God the Father, the judge, transfers all of it on to him. So the Father sends His Son to the cross in our place. And there, the gavel falls. It drops on Him instead of us. Praise God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, bears the full force of God's wrath against us for our sin. He spills His own blood for our sins. But then... And His resurrection from the dead brings our justification. What this means for us is that instead of wrath through the Son's sacrifice, the Father gives us grace as a gift. In verse 25, we see that it was Him who put forward His own Son in order to satisfy His wrath against us. Remember, Pastor Michael defined propitiation for us just a few weeks ago, which it simply means to satisfy wrath, to appease wrath. And this is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Satisfied His wrath against us for our sin. But not only has He pardoned our sins, canceling the debt by placing the burden on His Son, tells us that through faith in Jesus we are redeemed. I love how the Apostle Peter writes about this. He says that we've been bought by God, not with gold or with silver, but with the blood of Jesus. He's ransomed us from our worthless ways. Now we are declared to be righteous, not because of anything within us. We are covered in His righteousness, the righteousness of God 
that has come through Christ, the righteousness of Jesus our Lord. And we are now justified by faith. The sentence of death no longer ours to bear. How often do you just pause and reflect on the magnitude of what God has done? Think about it. God didn't move the goalpost. He didn't lower the bar in order to accomplish our justification. What is and has always been required of us is righteousness. So God has taken the righteousness of Christ Jesus and He's placed it on you and He's placed it on me by grace through faith. He credits the righteousness of His perfect Son to the sinner who turns, repents of sin, and believes in the Lord Jesus. But to my own shame, I have to confess I don't reflect on this nearly enough. You probably wouldn't be surprised, but it's quite easy to stand up here behind a pulpit or a music stand and open the Word of God and preach with passion and joy and be all excited about it and not glorify God in the least of it. Too often I find myself taking inventory of my works, taking pride in the things that I've done, feeling justified because of my own merit. And that's an easy thing to do, isn't it? To feel like God must be pleased with me because of all of my success. Maybe you take great pride in how you love your spouse. Or maybe you take great pride in the virtues that you see lived out in your, your children. Or maybe you feel justified because of your generosity towards others, the way that you give and give and give of yourself for other people. And none of those things are bad. Those are, those are good things, certainly. They're all good works that we should hope to see produced in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a, as a result of our faith in Christ Jesus. But to take good things things that are produced and perfected in us by the Spirit of God, and to treat them like merit badges is opposed to the Christian gospel. The gospel reminds us that in and of ourselves, we have no merit. The only thing we bring to the table is our sin. All of the merit belongs to Christ, and God has credited it to you as a precious gift of His grace through faith for those of us who are repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus. And if you are repenting and trusting in Jesus, your justification is and was possible because he made the righteousness of God available to you through the laying down of his own life in your place. And yet, there's more in this text to see. God has done even more than put forward Jesus to atone for our sins. And so that's the second thing I want to draw out, and I promise it's not nearly as long as the first. God's righteousness and his mercy are shown through the cross of Christ. I mentioned earlier that the righteousness of God or God's righteousness is mentioned four times in this text. We covered the first two that were mentioned in verses 21 and 22. But now, Paul is going to point to them again in verses 25 and 26. However, I think that even in just a few verses, when you hit 23 and 24, I think there's just a little bit of a, of a, of a change in how Paul approaches the righteousness of God. Obviously, they go together. They play off of one another, but I think Paul comes at it just at a slightly different angle here in these last two verses. Like I just finished saying earlier in the text, we see the availability of God's righteousness has been now has been made available to sinners by faith in Jesus. But in verse 25, I think Paul comes at it a little differently to show how God is 
righteous. Look again at verse 25, looking at uh, the second part of it after the period. Where it says, This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. All right. Well, let's deal with that. Because I don't know about you guys, but I don't say forbearance a whole lot. What does that mean? What, what, what are we talking about when we say divine forbearance? Well, quite simply, this is God's godly, holy patience. His self-control, his restraint. In his patience, Paul is telling us that God has passed over former sins. Quite literally, the text is saying that he overlooked or he suspended the punishment of sin. Think about that for a second. He made the decision to not punish our sins for a time. Think about it. Paul has made it clear to this point in the letter that we are unrighteous and we deserve condemnation because of our sin. God is righteous and His righteousness is our only hope of being counted as righteous. He is said to be light and to have no darkness within Him, meaning He is morally perfect. Habakkuk says that he is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. We've been going through the minor prophets in our small groups on Sunday mornings. I think we just wrapped that up today. And we've seen in and through the minor prophets in their ministry over and over how God takes very seriously the holiness of his people. And we see that because he pours out judgment on them time and time again for their continued unrighteousness. But now... Paul's telling us that he's overlooked sin for a time. What in the world? What gives? Either God is holy and he hates sin, and so he punishes it because he denies his glorious authority, or he isn't holy and he isn't just because he allows sin to persist and does nothing about it. Is that what Paul's saying? Well, no, of course not. It's not one or the other. God is holy, and he hates sin, but he's also merciful. He is just. He will punish sin. We'll see that he has, but he's also exceedingly patient with man, the very man he created and who then rebelled against him. It would be right to say that if God never punished sin, that we couldn't call him holy or just. Because he wouldn't be, and we would have no hope. But at the same time, if God didn't show restraint in his judging of sin, what chance would we stand? We still wouldn't have any hope. Psalm 51 talks about humanity as being uh, disposed towards sin from conception. It's not a matter of being corrupted by our environment, it's the fact is, we're corrupted from the very beginning of life. So without His incredible patience, His divine mercy to pass over sins, there would be no hope of pardon. I ask you to consider, again, the words of the Apostle Peter, what he says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It's important to understand the context of 2 Peter 3. Uh, it's judgment. Peter's actually asking and dealing with some of these very, these very questions. He's dealing with the reality of unrighteousness and wickedness in the world and kind of asking the question, 
Is God delayed? Is God slow? Is God ignoring him? What is, what's going on here? Why is this the case? But Peter, in verse 9, says this, dealing with the judgment of the Lord against sin. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient because his desire is for the repentance of man. We see this in Ezekiel 18 and 33 where the Lord expresses that his pleasure is in the turning of the wicked from their sin. Not in their destruction, but in their praise of him as they turn from sin. So the Lord chooses to show patience and mercy to his rebellious creation in order that we would turn from our sins and honor him. But that, of course, is not to say that God does not punish sin. I just mentioned a moment ago, we know from Israel's history that God does not leave sin unpunished. Our wickedness and unrighteousness is not overlooked. He warned them, the nation of Israel that is, about his coming wrath time and time again. And when they didn't listen, he punished them. We also know that he's going to pour out his wrath at the end of the age on sinful man. Those who refuse his overtures of grace. But then there's also what Paul says here in Romans 3. Paul brings up the cross of Christ. Because it's there that the mercy of God and the justice of God meet up. Paul tells us that God put forward Christ Jesus as propitiation. Remember, that's to satisfy wrath. God put forward Christ Jesus to satisfy His wrath against sin by His blood. To show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Paul is saying that God is shown to be righteous because he does not let sin go unpunished. But the punishment for our sin was executed on Christ. Our sentence of death and eternal suffering of the wrath of God was taken upon Jesus, our Lord, there on the cross. He was punished for us so that we could stand before God righteous and redeemed. This being true, it would then be unjust for God to be anything but patient with us. The Father has already satisfied His wrath against the Christian by pouring it all out upon Christ. And in this, His righteousness has been shown. It's been proven to be true at the present time, Paul says, through our faith. God is just because He punished the believer's sins in Christ. He does not let sin go unpunished. He is the justifier because he, in his patience, has passed over former sins and now counts us as righteous by faith. Our justification comes by that faith and is a result of the incredible mercy and patience shown to us by God. R.C. Sproul said it this way, The cross of Jesus Christ not only redeems us, it also vindicates God. It makes it perfectly clear that God takes sin very seriously. How many times have you heard people say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and mercy and love? 
Where do we find in Scripture the fullest expression of the love of God? In the cross. Where do we find the most awful manifestation of the wrath of God? Is it not also in the cross? Where He pours out wrath upon His own Son. The same act shows that God judges sin. And yet, is a loving and merciful God. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. He put forward His Son to bear His wrath against our sins so that we, by faith, could be counted justified. He was patient with us, passing over sins until we came to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus that God has not spared His own Son to accomplish our salvation and His immeasurable mercy to us must lead to confidence that we will be saved from the coming and final judgment of the Lord against sin. In fact, if you were to pick up here and just kind of continue reading on what Paul says as he kind of develops this idea of justification out through the next several chapters... Um, you would find, when you get to Romans 8, kind of some concluding thoughts that Paul has based off of the eternal security that those in Christ have by faith. There Paul writes that those whom God has justified, He has glorified. He has declared to be perfect. And there, you may know this in Romans 8.31, he asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then... If that's not enough for you, Paul goes on to say this in Romans 8, 37 to 39. I love these words. No, you're so good. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This confidence, it can't lead us to seek an easy, comfortable life till we just ease on in to eternity. Honestly, there isn't even a category in the Bible for that sort of faith. No. What Jesus said is that anyone who would follow him will take up their cross and follow him, and that whoever did not cannot be his disciple. The call of Christ is one to come and die that we might live, but yet, With that, he invites us in, saying, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. That being so, if we say that we truly believe that God has justified us by the blood of His Son, and if we say because of that, because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord by faith, our faith, We cannot be separated from God's love. It can't happen. The Word of God tells us so. If we truly believe that, what wouldn't we be willing to do 
to see the kingdom of God advance. This weekend, we asked the students to consider, you heard Pastor Michael mention this earlier, it's one question. You have one life to live. What will you do with it? You've got one shot at this thing. If you truly believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, how is it going to impact the things that you do to see his name praised among the nations of this world, including this one? But church, this question cannot be left to our teenagers and to our college students who have heard this repeatedly for months now. Whether you are 8, 18, or 80, if you have been covered in the righteousness of Christ by faith in Him, then you must answer that question. You've got one life to live. What are you going to do with it? Will you constantly fight with your parents because you don't like their rules or the things that they want you to do? Or will you gladly submit to their authority over you because you know it was given to them by God? Your submission to them honors God, and it teaches you to submit to Him. Jesus says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And all the parents said it, amen. <laughs> Another question, will you work to earn enough money to buy yourself and your family all the pleasures of the Western world? Or will you view the money that you have as God's that he allows you to have to spread his kingdom? Will you do without all the things that our consumer culture insists that you must have to be happy and instead find your greatest joy in giving to send church planters and revitalizers all over the world to see the gospel spread? Will you pass on the luxury vacation or that second and third family getaway to go to Southeast Asia when, Lord willing, this church body goes in the fall? Will you push your children to prioritize achievements in the world of academics or extracurricular activities, filling all of your family's free time with another practice or a school schedule that's so bogged down it requires hours and hours and hours on end of studying every single night? Or will you push back against the cultural norm so as to establish and protect family worship in your homes? Listen, our children need to be grounded in a biblical worldview that will not be shaken when it is challenged. And church, it will be challenged. Pastor Michael brought up what happened, the atrocity that happened in the New York State Legislature this week. How will your children answer these questions when they step onto a college campus, when they have everything that they've ever heard thrown back in their face and told that it's look croc. This establishing of a biblical worldview in them has to start in your homes. It can be bolstered and supported here, but it must start in your homes. Speaking of your home, Will you treat it like your personal sanctuary from the outside world, your castle with the moat around it and the drawbridge that you might pull up and keep all the dangerous things out? Will you throw open the door to your home? Lower the drawbridge, fill in the moat, leave the gates wide open 
so that your neighbors can come and gather around your kitchen table, your co-workers, whoever else the Lord sees fit to bring into the home that He has given to you in a place that He has decided you ought to be so that you can share the hope of the gospel with them. Will you prize comfort and convenience above everything else, seeking a cushy life and then a cushy and easy retirement? Or will you lay aside the American dream and all its false promises, using the skill set that you have to take a job in hard places around this country and around this world, working with church planters and revitalizers in healthy churches to see the gospel advance in the darkest of places. We push on our college students, and it's starting to trickle down into our youth ministry all the time, to think about the degree that you're getting or will one day get and think about the places that you can go with that degree, places where the name of Jesus is not spoken. Or if it is spoken, it's in hushed tones for threat of injury, harm, death. But why should that be limited to our students? I get it. In different seasons of life, it makes moves like that more challenging. There's more things to work out. But why should they be the only ones thinking about it? I ask you, will you, will you spend your retirement years celebrating years of hard work by vacationing around the world? Or will you spend it taking the gospel around the world? to places that are in desperate need of the light of the gospel. Will you, as I just said, prize your own comfort and your convenience in a life of ease, meanwhile neglecting the fact that all over this country and all over this world, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, in your workplaces, there are people who are not covered by the righteousness of Christ, for they have not yet turned in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus we talk about the gavel having fallen on Christ, but we must understand the gavel is still raised for those outside of Christ. And it will fall one day. And it will be horrific and horrible, but it will be just. And God will be shown to be holy in the judgment of sinners. So let me ask you. Will you consider them? Not just considering that you are righteous, and praise God for that. But will you consider them? And consider your life? And consider what role you might have to play of stepping in, sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus with them, that instead of the gavel falling on them, they might be covered in the righteousness of Christ through repentance and faith. Shortly after being threatened online, Fatima decided to tell her family that she had become a Christian. Remember, this is illegal in Saudi Arabia. So they were angry, and there was an argument. The argument quickly became heated. The following day, Fatima returned home from a family function to find her brother in her room on her open laptop that had as her desktop image a cross, which is illegal in Saudi Arabia, and several of her open blogs talking about her love for the Lord Jesus and her desires to see Saudis turn in faith to the Lord Jesus, to know his love. Her brother was furious. He stormed out of the room. Fatima locked her door for safety and began to write blogs asking for prayer because she knew she was in trouble. But during this time, 
knowing she was in trouble, not knowing what was going to happen, she wrote, Jesus is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Her confidence was in God. After several hours, Fatima's brother returned to her room. I wish I could say to you that he returned with tears in his eyes, desiring to know the Lord Jesus as his Savior, but he did not. He hurt her terribly. And then he killed her, her own brother, because she was now following Christ. She was 28. We live in a place where we don't have to worry about being hauled away or harmed or killed for our faith. But do we leverage our freedom to seek the spread of the gospel anchored by confidence in our standing before God that cannot be taken from us because He is the one who secured our place before Him and in Him through Christ? Or do we allow our faith to be choked out by the cares and the concerns of the culture around us? You have one life left, one life to live. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, Lord, we thank you for you and your mercy and your grace have saved our souls. You've justified us through the work of Christ Jesus our Lord on the cross. Oh God, how often do we take this work and we talk about how much it means to us and how much we love you. And yet we carry on caring only about the things of this world and not of the age to come. We concern ourselves more with the pleasures of citizenship in this country rather than citizenship in your kingdom. God, forgive us. Stir our hearts. And fill us with a longing for you and with a joy in you that is, cannot be replaced by anything, no matter how hard our sin urges us to try. Lord God, this morning we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia. Lord God, we pray that those who are embracing the truth of the gospel would be strong, that they would be strengthened by your Spirit, that you by your grace would continue to mature them in their walk with the Lord Jesus. We pray for those in Saudi Arabia, women like Fatima, isolated because they have no community around them, no community of faith, and they are having to live out their faith in secret. Oh God, strengthen them. Be their comforter. May they know the hope that they have and cling to it with all their might. And oh God, in your mercy, keep them. God, we pray for those who come to faith in a place where it's illegal to do so. But praise God, the law of your kingdom is not hemmed in by the laws of this world. Oh God, we pray that these who come to saving faith Lord, would grow in gospel proclamation, knowing how and when and where to share the gospel with their family, though they be lambs led to the slaughter. Lord God, we thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for their sacrifice, which is only made possible through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, who's filling up sufferings through his church. Oh God, strengthen the church in Saudi Arabia. May it grow and flourish in and through persecution. 
Lord, we certainly ask that you would stem the tides of persecution, that you would hold it back. But only, God, insofar as that brings you glory. If it brings you glory, Lord, to continue to allow it to persist, then so be it. But God, through it, strengthen your church and grow your church for the glory of your name. We pray for these young converts that have access to technology. Oh God, may they use it well. Give them wisdom in that to spread the hope of the gospel. And oh God, for the many Muslims in Saudi Arabia and around the world, we pray, God, that you would give a, put a, place a longing in their hearts. That though they try and try to fill it with anything and everything, God, may the longing of their heart only be satisfied when they hear of the Lord Jesus. Bring them to saving faith. Oh God, be with the church in Saudi Arabia and be glorified in the work you do through her. God, thank you for the time that we've had this morning. I pray you've been pleased with it and that you are exalted and glorified in the work you do coming out of it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.